Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. This is episode 282. So last week, we had a huge topic about through-hole components. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up, but we were running like an hour long on just talking about through-hole like parts and layout considerations. Uh, but it's SMT connector considerations. Um, cause one of the, one of the things that we tell our customers all the time is more through hole. I uh, not more through hole. Wrong. Parker, <laughs> wrong. Yeah. More service mounts. If possible, if possible, convert as much as you can to service mount because it is less expensive to assemble. And, uh, you, if you can cutting out the through hole process makes your product just much less expensive to make. Um, but there are some problems, I guess, when switching to surface mount for connectors. Connectors is like one of those last strongholds of through-hole, I, I feel, like in products. Well, the, I mean, there's the mechanical advantage, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's it's all about mechanical retention. Um, when you have a surface mount part, you're relying on basically the uh, bond between the copper... And the adhesive that's on the FR4. Mm. Um, whereas with through hold, you have the entire via that's plated to the FR4 and both sides of the adhesive trying to yank itself out of the entire um, board. Especially if, um, especially if you have IPC Clash 3 soldering on, on uh, through hole stuff, that means you're going to have basically through the entire barrel worth of solder and fillets on sides on so, both sides yeah yeah it's strong um but yeah yes peel strength the peel strength of the uh smt pads is what you only are really relying on with smt uh, smt connectors um but that might not be a concern because it might be a connector that is only used during assembly so like it's inside uh, the um, uh, the unit like an FFC cable something like that those are always uh, actually I, I won't say that I've seen through hole FFC connectors but majority of them are going to be service mount um, like basically it's how many insertions it, is that connector going to have to withstand through its life cycle like, also is it... which direction is the force coming from on that yeah. connector if it's going into the board only, then you're probably okay um, going with a surface mount. But if it's being yanked off the board, especially with a cable assembly, um, you might want to go with a through hole. Um, yeah, that might work for you and your lab, but the second Bubba out in the field has to uh, pull a cable assembly off. Like the, the, that SMD connector is coming right off. Yes. Um, it's also the price difference. What I've noticed is SMT, for the same connector, for some reason, SMT connectors cost more. I don't know if that's because they just cost more in general or is it's they're not as many manufactured of the same connector. Um, I'm going to bet you it's that. Is There's more of the through-hole of a connector being built than a service mount connector. That'd be um, my gut. Yep. Now... There's also other rules to this as well, like um, USB connectors. A lot of USB connectors are 
surface mount, but then they have solder lugs. And if you get the right kind of connector, you can also do what's called paste and pad, which is where they inject the paste into the through hole, which is which works for like USB micro and USB type C connectors. Um, you actually will see that on products where if you look at the board and then like the, the lug doesn't go all the way through the board, it kind of goes halfway through and you, and they don't have fillets around the lugs. It just looks like solder being, uh, looks like surface mount solder because it is, you know, I, I got a quick question for you and this, this is in relation. Well, uh, any contract manufacturer is going to handle this slightly different, but what, if, if I'm an engineer and I'm about to uh, send you a document package and I choose one of those SMD uh, USBs that has surface mount legs but through-hole mechanical pieces, do I consider that a through-hole part or an SMD part? Depends if, you're, if it needs that secondary assembly. So if you, if you can get away with paste and hole, then it's just surface mount all the way. But the moment that you go, okay, like if you don't design the pad right, basically it has two, like if you use a round hole for the lug, then that's getting hand soldered. <laughs> yeah. You get the hand solder cause you have to feed a lot of solder into it. There's no, there's, you can't put enough paste in there to get a good mechanical connection. Right. I, I think, um, I think the, the general rule of thumb is, uh, treat those as through hole. If, if there is a through hole leg, treat it as through hole. Uh, and you'll be pleasantly surprised if you get charged SMD price, uh, for assembly on it. Correct. Correct. Um, now, there's some been things, been some of these things I've been experimenting with, in basically switching everything to SMT. Um, I've been experimenting a lot with pinball related stuff because um, pinball boards have lots of through hole connectors because you have big chunky connectors that have to carry a lot of current, and they are mounted like on the back box. So you're kind of like so the operators are like leaning over and then grabbing just the wiring harness and then yanking on the board. Um, so you want as much strength as possible. Um, but I have been experimenting with through hole uh, with SMT to replace those because it would be much cheaper. Like I'm talking like I could save like 10 to 15 bucks per unit. Um, in and just part cost. cost or oh, assembly cost. Okay. Assembly cost. Yeah. Um, and the, the parts for the those components are about the same. So SMT versions are about the same as, as the through-hole. So it's a, a wash with the part cost. Um, so one, one of my first big experiments was with the um, the Doom shitty add-on for DEF CON about two years ago. Oh, right, yeah. And so the this is for hashtag badge life. Um and so I made a, a add-on for badges that had a screen on it, and you could basically load a GIF into the screen, and so you had a little tiny screen on your badge that could do whatever you wanted it to do. Um, and it was called the Doom shitty add-on because it was loaded with basically almost like a Tamagotchi Doom character. Because, um, like, you could, like... It was very you couldn't like feed it or anything like a Tamagotchi would normally be like, but like it's you could like send that. it damage points, and so he would get like more bloody and get angry. And he also had a an angry face too, so he can get more angry or more damaged. And then there was like a god mode you can enable. His too. eyes glow yellow. Yes, yeah, eyes would glow yellow. Um. So for that though, I need like. 
its bill of materials was like insane because like it had like a beefy micro it had a microcontroller more powerful than most badges <laughs> to begin with because it had to run a really high resolution screen it was a really high dpi screen i think it was like 200 dpi screen it was one inch by one inch or 240 something like that um and everything was super compact and so i needed to go to a surface mount connector and the those connectors were two by three um 2.54 millimeter connectors kind of like an arduino header um uh for uh isp programming um and so i did experiment with doing service mount ones uh, of those kind of pin headers and what i did is i made the landing pads a lot larger than what the manufacturer called out for like almost like three or four times as big and then i put the same pad on the back side of the board so i had two surface mount pads and then i put vias around the perimeter of each pin um i'll put a screenshot up um on the you know on the podcast you know, so people can visualize that but basically i via stitch like how you would do for grounding same concept except it was two pads back to back and via stitched around it and then um reflowed the component on that and it reflowed fine didn't have any problem with thermal sinking or anything like that um and the and then i basically destructively tested this by putting the pin header in a board in a like breadboard and then twisting the PCB and it would shear the solder before it would shear the pads off. So in my mind, that is, that's good enough. Like it's you not as good as it was up the, uh, the, the peel strength, the peel strength. Yeah. So it's not as strong as a through hole connector. Cause the through hole, you basically would have to shear the pin itself, uh, and, and twist it and actually you'd have to do that for you know six connect uh, six pins in this case but it was good enough where we didn't have a single failure at defcon uh doing this method and at defcon everyone is drunk and dancing and stuff so i think that's yeah pretty, and and, and this win. this add-on is just hanging out on a badge that's you know slapping it, around it, on your it's chest not just and... on the badge the badge is wiggling around but it's like hanging off the badge too in right. free space because it's it's main point of contact is the connector that's the only no that's the only point of contact well yeah and, sure yeah right. and it's not a, a lightweight bat uh add-on either because it's got a screen on it um i was just i was just really happy about that method I, I i want to apply that to pinball and see how well it works i've been experimenting with that and i built a board for it um, I just need to be able to put it into a pinball machine and actually I want to test it in real life before I like roll that into production and have operators like you know beat on it so <laughs> you know I, I I have a client right now that um, um, ran into that issue with a board that they were um, that they were doing they, they have a 90 degree surface mount header and so they have one board 90 degrees to another and it's kind of flapping around in the breeze and and somebody hit it inside of a case and it ripped all the pads of it, of that and uh and it was a mistake but it was also like hmm we need a solution to that and so i might uh, i might actually suggest this as a it, as a it works really well yeah it's yeah. still not as good as a through hole but it's 
I mean, you're you have to, you're shearing the solder, and so at least when it shears the solder, you can still go back and fix it. It's not like it rips the pads off, which is really hard to fix. So, so, um, I guess I guess the two things that uh, are are potential downsides to it, and they're 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 fairly minor if you ask me. Um, not all connectors are going to have extra room for you to put all those vias in there. So you, you, you might have to go with smaller vias, which is a pain in the butt. And then the other thing is if you're creating these via, I don't like in three dimensional space, these via fences around each pin, you're losing a ton of routing space in your mm -hmm. PCB across all your layers. So Correct. that kind of sucks. Yeah. Anything around your connector is basically, you got to treat your connector as a through hole connector. Yeah, but, but like, yeah, a, a really big through-hole connector. Yeah, a really big through-hole connector. Yeah. But, hey, all in the name of less expensive assembly. Oh, I mean, if you can get away with it. <laughs> uh, okay, there's there's the difference between, like, saving money by going to a different thing or doing what I call free work. Like, if you can, if you can like, hack a PCB, uh, the only cost is the development cost, right? Like, mm -hmm. just moving things around doesn't end up costing anything in that PCB, so you got a free fix there. Yes. Like, okay, at work, most of our boards are, are two-board designs, so I developed what I call book matching. So our, our boards go together face-to-face, um, -face. so when we panelize them, we open them up and put them side-by-side -side such that all of our surface mount go on one side and all of our through-hole fit in from the other side, and therefore, we Ooh. get one pass through our pick and place and one through our selective solder. And then the user, not the user, our uh, assemblers break them apart and then they fold them together and you have a product. Uh, and it's that was one of those free things. You just think about how where all the parts go and it saves double sided assembly or crazy mm -hmm. uh, through hole stuff. And on the book match, when you open it up, anything that's on the inside, we typically use surface mount parts. So it still adds to the or maintains the one side through hole processing. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. I never, you never told me that. It's a cool idea. No wonder that y'all you want to control your, your panelization. Oh yeah. We're real strict with our panelization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause we try, we didn't used to do this, but uh, we, we try to as much as possible put, a full product on a panel that would be that, that that would mean multiple PCBs if if there are multiple PCBs on a single mm -hmm. panel. In fact, I just redesigned a uh, one of our products and took it from I can't remember. It well, okay, so it was two different PCB arrays, two different uh, passes through the pick and place and one pass through the selective solder and I redesigned it entirely for one PCB array, one pass through pick and place, and one pass through selective solder. Uh, nice. And just by doing the book match and and moving parts around and Op basically, optimals. you you set the panel for optimized uh, assembly. Yeah, that's like a heavy heavy DFM. But also, we have enough uh, 0402 feeders on our machine now. Where it's like whole thing 0402. Everything I can get away with 0402, I'm doing it. You know. Nice. Because I because I mean when you start to get like. Our stuff is getting way more dense. Uh, we're putting way more features in our products than we ever have. And the size of the product is not getting any bigger. So it's like, mm -hmm. well, parts got to get smaller. Cool. So 
I got an update to my plastic actuator. I've been talking about this for a little while now. Um, so the, the, the plastic actuator is my little button thing that I've been designing for a few months now. Uh, and to... injection molding and all that good stuff. So uh, yeah. I, I showed everyone my, my button masher 9000, uh, which was a, a solenoid-based uh, test rig thing, which... When I got it all fired up and working, it functioned, but I wasn't super happy with it because it was just too slow. Uh, I had to I had to PWM the uh, the solenoids, uh, and the the ones I purchased they had a rated uh, press force, and they just were not what they said they were at all. So I had to overload them, and because of that, they overheated. <laughs> so I had to do like I had to I had to small duty cycle them and stuff and it's like this is garbage so i got a linear um uh actuator and just decided to beat the hell out of the buttons with a with a linear <laughs> actuator i didn't go that route at first because um i didn't want to damage the buttons i didn't want to like over overthrow uh that and with the uh with a solenoid i was going to put a small like rubber piece at the end such that i could smoothly press them but i ended up just fine-tuning my test rig such that I could get it just perfectly where the linear actuator would oh, so just the, press the, the button. Yeah, the, the just before end of stroke is just enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's just the thing. Okay, so the, the actuator I got does, has a half millimeter stroke. It's not half millimeter, half inch stroke. I was about to say it. half millimeters. It's pretty small. I mean, that honestly, that would be awesome. I wish it was because that would be better. But, uh, yeah, no, it has a half inch stroke on it. But I, but I only need to press 16 thousandths of an inch. So, like, 98% of its travel is not doing any useful work, right? Um, but that's just the whole thing. It's, like, it's, it's just way easy to overthrow air. 16 thousandths of an inch. At, and, but just, I don't know, careful tuning and, and positioning of things. I, I got it working. So uh, the, the actuator I got is 12-volt DC, and it runs 300 RPM. And so I just cranked it wide open. Um, and I wrote an Arduino sketch that just basically counts the number of times that it uh, it detects the button being pressed. And I'm up to 420,000 button presses now uh, with no failures, uh, which, hey, like that's well beyond what I'm already happy with. Um, some, some of our previous buttons that I, I'm designing just to replace, we had been seeing failures in the low 10,000s. Uh, and so like, I'm already way, way, way beyond, um, what I'm, what I'm looking for there. So the goal is to, uh, whichever one comes first, a million button presses or failure. Uh, it's what I'm, <laughs> what I'm going for here. And, uh, the, so the cool thing is I've, I've been occasionally stopping the test rig and just pressing the button by hand to see if it feels any different. And it, and it certainly does have a little bit more of a worn in feel, but nothing I would say is is significantly different enough to that that like a, a customer would be upset with it, you know. And there's no way on earth that any of our customers are ever going to press something 420,000 times uh, across the lifespan of this thing. So I'm already way past what uh, what is necessary. But I'm just going to keep going with it. At the same time, this is only the first actuator. I'm going to test a handful of these but i'm i'm thrilled with how that's worked already and and okay so to be honest i think i'm actually well past four hundred and twenty thousand presses i'm at four hundred and twenty thousand uh arduino presses and i realized that i think my sketch that i wrote 
um, would miss some presses uh, occasionally. How so? That's what, one of the reasons why I wanted to originally go with the solenoid, because the Arduino could tell the solenoid and then report back if it actually got a, uh, a press. Then, I could, then I'd have a feedback loop, but with this, I don't really have that. I'm just counting presses and seeing if it ever fails. Uh, and, and the reason why I think it was missing pulses is because I had a handful of serial prints in there because I was just having it print out the number of presses as it counts up. But I had it also print a handful of other things, and I completely forgot that in Arduino land, like those functions take an enormous amount of clock cycles to do like arduino is not particularly efficient and at 300 rpm that's five times a second so i have a fifth of a second to detect my pulse and do all these serial prints i think that it was uh, on occasion rolling over and not detecting a pulse you're not using the interrupt no hell no <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to write. I didn't want to go and write an interrupt. I probably should have, but I ended up just getting rid of a couple serial prints and and because uh, I, I had some that were just making it easier to read in the monitor, the serial monitor. So it's just like I'll just get rid of those. And now it's detecting every pulse. So uh, gotcha. four hundred and twenty is is what Arduino was reported. I bet you it's probably more like four thirty or something like that. Yeah. Um. Because I've been working on some fixturing stuff at work and test fixtures. Um, and why I brought up the interrupt thing is, so I have some test fixtures that operators are plugging the DUTs, device under tests, into it. And I need to let the computer know uh, that's running a Python script that a, a user has interacted with that DUT. Um, and so I have a microcontroller inside there that's actually um, monitoring on an interrupt those switches. And then it's what it does is it sticks that stuff into a mailbox. And then when the computer goes, Hey, and actually the computer, uh, the microcontroller is running a Skippy interpreter. So I can talk to my, my fixtures the same way I talk to my multimeters and all that stuff in my power supplies. I can just use Skippy, um, which is the, was it? What did that stand for again? It's SCPI, which is Standard Commands for Programmable Instruments. So that same kind of structure I can use for my uh, my relay boxes and all that stuff. Um, so when the Python code goes, hey, I need to know what's going on on with the switches, it just says it just says SW question mark, and then the our, the uh, microcontroller inside the box goes ah I know what that means grabs the mailbox sends it out and then zeroes out the mailbox so that way I don't have to have um, I don't have to have the uh, computer the Python code just constantly pulling the switches so the the low level does the interrupt on that stuff and manages the low level button presses. And then the high-level stuff just has to go, okay, was a button pressed since the last time I checked? <laughs> Makes it so you don't miss anything. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a more proper way of, of coding things. <laughs> I, like, I like how it's proper. It is the right way to do it, though. I mean, it's a, it's a lot more logical as opposed to just relying on your main loop speed to be like, hey, did something change? I don't know. Let's go another loop and find out. Yeah, go go <laughs> another loop. Uh, yeah. So speaking of Python, though, 
is Dan, who's a uh, one of our lead developers here at MacFab, showed me this module uh, for Python called Ice Cream. I do not know why it's called Ice Cream. So what do you think this module does that's called Ice Cream? I have no clue. So it's a module that makes debugging through print functions better. Because I know Ooh. everyone here... So everyone print. should get this is what you're saying. For Python, yes. Um, for serial prints in Python, like because it's going to print to just your command line. This is... I've been starting to use it. It makes your code a lot better and a lot easier to read. Um, so what it does is it automatically does verbose print statements in Python. So, because usually when you just say print X, it was just, it just prints the value of X, what the uh, what it's been assigned to. The problem is if you have a lot of print X and then print Y, et cetera, et cetera, you don't know what those numbers mean in your in your console logs. Um, and so you usually would go print X equals dot format X. That gets old after doing that for every single thing you want to print. The thing is, now you can just do ICX, and it will print X equals this. Like, it, it, it will automatically does the verbose stuff for you. Mm. Um, and then, also, the other thing is it's easily disabled. Like, you just have to have, like, at the beginning of your script, just put, like, disable IC or ice cream, and boom, done. Oh, that's nice. So, instead of having to go through and, like, either wrap a... What I do is wrap an if statement, basically, if debug is true print this and if not debug don't print it right that's nice uh i have to do that for every single thing i print in my scripts now i don't have to do that anymore ah this is an uh, awesome library it's funny because because that's exactly what i was trying to do on a very small scale in my arduino sketch is just have it print out something that just wasn't a value on the screen and just yeah, like yeah, exactly strings of flowing values right yeah, this is exact like, this is an awesome module, and I, I wonder why something like this didn't exist before. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. But um, where do you get it? it? Just go to Google know. and type in ice cream Python. <laughs> um, I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's a, uh, it's, do not use print for debugging in Python anymore. A redefined print function for debugging in Python. By Christopher Tao. Yeah, yeah, they, and they give they give an example right at the beginning where they're just saying like print some values and that's all you're gonna get is just values, and that's yes. fine if you only have one or two, you know. Yes, but when you have like an entire script uh, for uh, testing and validation, use proper logging. Uh, printing is proper logging, Chris. <laughs> Or or you have uh, um, you have those random print functions that are you know if you're trying to figure out debug your code and figure out like why you did or did not get to a function and you just have it pop up in the screen they're like I'm in the function or something like yeah. that I, print here here yeah <laughs> um also uh my my error. Like, if it's not supposed to get there, it just says print fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. 
That's cool. I uh, I really do need to get into Python one of these days and just start digging around. Just because it's, it's so powerful. useful. It's so useful from um, a manufacturing engineer's uh, standpoint. Um, exactly. Like I, I I don't have a lot of things that I would want outside of that realm, but doing test fixturing and talking with with uh, with meters and things like that, like I I really do need to learn it. Yeah. The the big thing is think about. Anything that you do that is tedious and repetitive, you can make Python and stuff make uh, take that load off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know I have a text parsing um, task that uh, it's more than just dumping text in a, in a separate text file. Uh, it would be great to have something that I could um, have one of my operators input a few variables in based off of what the run was and it would automatically adjust a text file based off of that which python would be very would be easy to get that done yeah yeah you could either easily do that in a script or you can go even further and make a little gooey well yeah the, the gooey would be the gooey would be really cool um yeah that would we should fun. do a little uh do a little demo at like a uh, a, a macfab after dark sometime and actually write this code for you Oh, that'd be fun. That'd be and super like fun. do some some like intro to Python for hardware engineers. Oh yeah, well I mean it would be an intro for me, really. Yeah, well at least like installing like an IDE and Python and Windows and oh yeah, getting that stuff running and then like let's make a little GUI that you type in some numbers. I basically have a full Excel sheet that that is that GUI. Um, that does all, everything automatically for you, and then it just spits out the lines of text that need to get entered in. So really, all I need is that Excel sheet distilled into Python code, and then the last function of taking a text file and putting it exactly where it needs to be. Which, what's funny is, I have this this text file that can be anywhere from like uh, a few kilobytes all the way up to 250 megabytes. And what's nice about it is it, there's the word absolute in this text file, and it always only occurs one time, and it always occurs in the same place, and I always know that my code needs to happen directly after the word absolute, and that's it. So it's super easy, right? You so, got it. Yeah. Yeah, let's plan that. I think that, uh, I think that sounds like fun. It's been a while since okay. we've done the, uh, an after hours. Yeah, we'll have to do that. Uh, what the planet? We should see uh, what people are, are feeling time-wise in like the Slack channel, if anyone's actually interested in that. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, I think we yeah. should also do a uh, like a board design or something like that in an after. Oh yeah, we need to do that one time. Yeah, that would be really fun, and just have people uh, critique it the entire time. <laughs> or uh, Twitch lays out a board, right? Something like that. Now, God, Can you imagine? Because that's that's based off the uh, Twitch plays Pokemon. Uh, Twitch plays Pokemon uh, phenomenon from like what was that three years ago now? Four years? Anyways, the I'm trying to imagine how that would. You'd have to have a text based only entry. Uh, so you could technically do an eagle. I was about to say that sounds eagly. Um. That sounds brutal at the same time. So I, I would imagine you would give it a schematic already. Yeah. 
<laughs> I see the I see the gears turning in Parker's head. Yeah, because I've actually looked at the code that makes that Twitch Plays Pokemon thing work, and it's pretty easy to make it do whatever. Um, yeah, you can adapt it. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> cool. Right. Well, what so kind of, what kind of if we did Twitch Plays Eagle Layout? Uh, what board would we have it designed? I would think just starting with a simple board, like yeah. maybe a coin cell battery, a couple of resistors, an LED. Oh, it would have what to else? be a few parts uh, just yeah. to give it a try. I think like most difficult you could go is like an Arduino. That would be pretty complicated. It would be, but that's what I'm saying. Like That's like top. And then what you would do is... It would have to pass DRC and no rat lines at the end. And that's when it would be considered done. The moment those two, those two things exist, then it just goes done, it freezes the design, and then immediately prints it on Macrofab. Immediately orders it. <laughs> immediately orders it through the API. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it sends it to Parker for testing. <laughs> it ends up being like a freaking like... 15 by 15 inch board <laughs> with one $2,000 one little LED on it yeah and it has a 3 mil trace that connects everything yeah everything together hmm I'd like this idea we should do it you know um, I, I'm writing this, this down this is this is somewhat ridiculous but uh, I've always wanted to take a board and uh, and make like I don't know let's say let's say six layers do six layers with blind and buried vias in it and uh, take one trace, start it at one corner and consume an entire layer in the most efficient way. So like have like, I don't know, let's say a 10 thou trace and uh, following DRC rules and everything, cover every inch of that board with a snake trace and then plop down one layer and and do an entire the entire next layer and do that all the way across the board. And I have no idea why I want to do that. It just sounds like fun for some reason. Like it would serve zero purpose other than like how many miles of trace could you put on like a hundred millimeter by hundred millimeter board? It's probably not even a mile. But how many meters of traces <laughs> can you do? You can easily calculate that. I don't know. Like, what, what's the most? Well, now we're getting into mathematics. Like, you'd have to. Like, what's the best packing algorithm you can do to, you know, wrap a trace around? There's a fractal that gets into that. Um, that that that's like the best choice path you can take to fill the most area of something. I don't remember what that one is called. It ends up looking like castle turrets all over the place. Hmm. Yeah, it'd probably end up being a really awful antenna, right? <laughs> or a really awesome one. Yeah, well, one or the other, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've got a, a, an interesting circuit that I'm, I'm working on uh, at work, and um, this brings up something that, for my industry, not just audio, but, but specifically industry that uses plus-minus voltage in, uh, as, your, as your power supply, I run into this issue a lot. In fact, a few months ago... Um, I, I was talking about the need for a negative voltage input, negative voltage output, switch mode power supply, which, you know, at first you, you think about that, you're like, oh, okay, cool, yeah, just go find one. Yeah, good luck. They just don't exist because, like, 
the the world just doesn't really use bipolar supplies as much as they do um, unipolar uh, positive supplies. So I'm kind of running into that same situation right now. I've I've got a circuit that well okay l- let me back up. I've got an entire module that I'm I'm in the process of designing that's a pretty thirsty one. So the the it, it's very power hungry, and um, the thing that we're trying to take into account with this is. Most people, the power supplies they purchase for their case are, are just barely good enough for the case. And if we design a really power-hungry module, then we can cause problems with the startup of other modules in the case if ours is just acting like a, a, an extreme load right from the get-go. So our solution to this that we're wanting to implement is a time-delay startup on our uh, module so basically when someone flips the uh, the switch on their power supply all of their modules comes up ours waits a second or two and then starts to come up and not only that we have uh we can control all of our power supplies within our module and do all of our separate enables and things like that so this sounds like a great situation for a load switch right uh like a like a prnn channel load switch kind of thing what's um and and of course this can be done in a discrete uh, manner. We can just throw some comparators or some, some MOSFETs and things like that. But I, I was wanting to see what would be really, really super ideal is if there was an integrated circuit that handled power load switching with a time delay for bipolar inputs. And it's just like, nah, that doesn't exist. In fact, I, I noticed... Uh, I was I was searching earlier today for it, and uh, there was like a Texas Instruments forum where someone was asking for something very similar. In fact, they were just asking for a um, a load switch for negative supplies, and multiple TI engineers were chiming in, being like, "Yeah, I don't think we have that. In fact, I've never even heard of that." If TI doesn't have it, it doesn't exist. Well, basically, that's like I I took it that <laughs> as as kind of truth there because I started looking through TI and a handful of others and. Nah, it really, it really doesn't exist. And the funny thing is, it's sort of the same as a high, as a high side uh, positive switch. It's just you, you're changing the transistor types and, and doing some different logic. The biggest thing that I want to do with this is I want one control signal. So I want it such that there's a time delay, and then that time delay triggers the load switch for both of the positive and the negative. The negative rail. Then after that, there's a secondary delay, uh, and that secondary delay sends control signals to all of my power supply enable uh, lines, and then I can bring my power supplies up. So the, it's two-stage, because what I want to do is I'm trickle-charging up all my input capacitance on my, uh, on my module. So it doesn't act like a huge load all at the beginning. And that's that first initial delay. That first initial delay charges up all the my huge bulk capacitance on the front end. And then as soon as I throw my control signals to all of my enables, they consume power from my capacitors that are that have been trickle charged as opposed to acting like a giant load all of a sudden on the um, the main case power supply. So hopefully you might wanna... it's kind of soft. You might want to look into uh, PMICs, mm-hmm. power management, power management integrated circuits. Um, TI's got a lot of them. I think they make bipolar ones of those. That might be what you need. Well, I was looking at TI's offerings in in the whole power 
world today. And I didn't find anything that, that really stood out to me. If, if anyone is aware of it, um, let me know. Uh, of something that could work in this way. I can always, like I said, I can always implement it in discrete. And the, 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 the whole situation here is if, if I were to have one IC that can handle this, it would have to be cheaper than the discrete solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that also kind of sucks because ICs are expensive right now. Um, but, but yeah, that, that I know I can pull it off. The one thing that I'm looking at that, that could be kind of cool is instead of using, MOSFETs as my load switches, potentially using SSRs. Because with an SSR, I could control them both, the positive and the negative, with one control signal. And I wouldn't have to do logic switching to... Because uh, it's super annoying to have to control a negative load switch with a positive signal. You have to do some transistor goofiness to, to so uh, translate things. Couldn't you use, let's say... Because you have plus minus 12 volts here. What if you had a 0 volt, 12 volt, and 24 volt rail? Uh, I mean, I don't I don't have that. Well, yeah, you could. You could easily have that. That's oh, still the oh, same oh, you, you're 24 just say, volt You're just swing. saying shift the grounds on things? Or shift your ground yeah, reference? Sh- yeah. yeah, shift your reference up. 12 volts. And then you could use an off-shelf PMCI that does all that. Uh, I'd have to look into that. Uh, maybe. Because, like, I still rely on ground being ground in the case, and this thing is being connected to a bunch of other things that I have no clue about. Mm. Uh, and and that PMCI would not make that isolated, so I don't think that that would particularly work. Hmm. I, you'd have to isolate everything to, to make that, that work, right? Yeah. So, I like I that. I like that. Have oh, a... that. That's cool. I wonder if they have a bipolar PMCI, or anyone does. That might be the right um, might, might be the right term you need to start googling though. Yeah. PMIC, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if it's all um, all in one kind of solution. Mm-hmm. I do like the the uh, the thought of an SSR, although. The SSRs on, um, if you look at, you know, inexpensive board mount SSRs, uh, they're great, but they usually don't have particularly high current ratings. Um, so I think that's where I'd have to spend some more money to get uh, a higher current rating. And then at that point, like, you know, you're blowing 20 cent transistors out the water or actually mm-hmm. much, much cheaper than 20 cents. So I think I'm going to have to end up going with the transistor solution, even though I really I would rather not. I'd love to have, like, an all-in-one package. So if anyone uh, knows about that, hit me up in Slack. Well, I'm looking forward to what the solution becomes. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of already have one. I've got an, uh, an LT Spice doing some some stuff. Some fancy stuff. But it but it's it's not... It's not, it's not polished yet. It's doing stuff. It's just not polished. <laughs> <laughs> I could switch a load. Let's put it that way. That's the first step. Yeah. Okay. Tasty chips time. Ooh. And this is, uh, these are two, and they're not, unfortunately, they're not chips. I don't think they're, ever since we brought back tasty chips, not a single time has been a chip yet. 
Not yet. Not yet. Um, so the Keystone 9081. These are going to be so, like, like these components are going to be, like, people are going to look at them and be like, oh, what's so fancy about those? It's the application uh, of these that makes them awesome. So the Keystone 9081 is a plastic standoff. And it was like, oh, yeah, standoffs, right, for, for mounting holes. But this one has double-sided sticky foam on it. So when you are doing prototyping and are throwing a PCB into a rack mount enclosure or any kind of closure, and you don't have time as an engineer to, like, do your mechanical design correctly, or you don't want to deal with drilling holes into and, like, getting aluminum all over your shop floor, pop those little, little snaps into your board. Take the foam tape off the little backer and it's plop the board down. Done. I, you know, I would, I would totally use these in a situation where gravity is is with you. Know, gravity is your friend. Like, yeah, if the board's hanging friend. upside down. You know, that's probably not a good good thing. But like, if no. it's if it's flat against, flat. Um, yeah, like these things are awesome. Dude, I love just going to Keystone Electronics website and just browsing all of their stuff because they have so many unique. Um, concepts and ideas like they like a lot of their a lot of their stuff are things where it's just like i look at it and then i can see the product around what they have exactly <laughs> i saw these plastic standoffs and i'm like oh i know what these are awesome for but they have so many products like that like keystone 7693 which is a screw a through hole screw terminal but um it's a it's a it's raised off the board and so that when you put your, let's say you put your ring terminal on it, it keeps it isolated from the board. Mm. And they're beefy. Like, they're four giant lugs that go into the board. So there's no way it's going to rip off. You know, another thing that is yeah, super minor, but, like, I just love it. They they have a good relationship, I guess, with Mauser. Uh, such that, like, if you go to Keystone Electronics website, they have a four-digit number for all of their products. If you go to Mauser and you just type in that four-digit number, it takes you right to that part. You don't have to have this, like, 15-digit craziness number or anything like that. Um, in one of my amps right now, I am using a handful of Keystone parts. Uh, I'll pull up one right now, the 7833, which is they have um, vertical standing quick disconnect PCB mounts that are all in a... Uh, in a, like a you, you, you could buy them by however many positions um so i buy them based off of my transformer tap so if i have a three position transformer tap i'll buy a, the triple one or a double one for a for a dual tap and uh and then i slot uh flag terminals into them and they're awesome these things are killer yeah keystone sponsor the podcast please <laughs> also if you're if you're an electrical <laughs> engineer that doesn't want to uh, learn or deal a lot with uh, hardware or mechanical engineering uh, stuff. Like you, Keystone Electronics sells like M3 screws and uh, on Mauser, oh, yeah. and you yeah. can just pick those up for whatever hobby project you're doing. And so, yeah, yeah. save on shipping cost. They also have a really nice um, TO220 Mica uh, mounting kit. So if you want to bolt a TO220 mm -hmm. to a chassis or something like that, uh, it comes with all the mounting hardware, but pl uh, plus an um, isolating shoulder washer that goes through the tab and stuff. I've used those a bunch. Um, 
Those are nice. I mean, it ends so, up being like $3 for a mounting kit, but if you're doing hobby stuff, most of that, most of the time, that doesn't matter. Yeah. So KC8APF from Switch, uh, Twitch chat says, um, Steven, you probably want a hot swap controller instead of a load switch. And it has a link to an analog. Actually, that's a linear technology part. It's LT4220, which will do ah, plus minus okay. 16.5 volts. I was looking at hot swap controllers um, before earlier today, but yeah, I didn't see this one. Look at that. It will do hot swap controller for positive and negative supplies. Wow, look at that. Uh, it does supply tracking, and it totally covers the entire range that I'm looking at. Um Ooh, does it do current limiting as well? Current limit uh, with foldback. Ooh. Oh, foldback. I like that. Um, and, okay. And it's actually ah, very I'm... similar application because it's for a live backplane, which is kind of similar what you're doing. Okay, so, yeah, what's actually kind of cool, yeah, uh, what's, what's really cool about that is um, none of these, none of, no modular unit is ever supposed to be hot swapped ever. Um, mainly because the connector itself, you can't guarantee how somebody plugs it in. So which supply is going to get power first or is ground going to get power first or whatever. Uh, but a hot swap controller can, can help prevent that, you know? So, ah, uh, thanks. I'm going to have to look at this. It's linear, so it's probably expensive, but we'll, uh, yeah, let's, I, I'm, I'm curious. Get them. Uh, well, that's true. Yeah. Let me let me see this. Is is this cheaper than a uh, ooh <laughs> seven dollars in quantity? Yeah. Mm. Okay, I'm still gonna look at it because it because it could be cool. This is going on a on an expensive module that's that's somewhat flagship. It is in quant in binaural. It's four dollars and eighty seven cents, which actually isn't that bad. Yeah, but a few resistors and transistors is a lot less not bad. But this does more than what that can do. That's true. That is that is totally true. Um, this actually does. From what I'm looking at, it might. Oh, let's see here. Oh, and it has a timing pin on it. Ooh, that's cool. That's real cool. Uh, okay, I'm totally gonna read through this whole data sheet. Well, not now. We gotta finish the podcast. No, right now. Come on, let's do it live. A live <laughs> reading. <laughs> Of the LT4220. <laughs> well, to prevent our listeners from falling asleep, we'll move on. Um, so I was looking at... Uh, I'm building all these rack mount test equipment stuff uh, for work. And I needed to install a bunch of banana jacks. And I don't know if you remember from back in the day, Stephen. Uh, we built the Reload Pro. Which is one right there on my desk. Um and we had to install the banana jacks on those. And we had some tools that were like hand tools that kind of like... Basically, the the nut of the banana jacks have two teeth that go into into it. It's not a hex uh, like a normal nut would be. It's, it's circular with two uh, teeth that get cut out on it. And so you need to have a tool that's got two cogs to engage it. And so you could turn it. And actually get it tight on the panel so it doesn't spin and rattle loose. Um, and so I actually went through my drawer at work. And I'm like, oh, where is that tool? 
and it's not there. That was like eight years ago at this point. Um, so that tool is long gone. And so I started looking up, uh, you know, buying that tool. They're like 80 bucks for mm. a piece of steel, a, a round piece of tube that's got two notches in it. Yikes. $80. Um, so I was like, okay, someone's got to, like, design that tool so you can 3D print it. Right? Couldn't find one. So I designed one. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like a, it sounds like a you problem. Yeah, it sounds like a you problem. So I designed one, and I actually I popped it off the printer right before the podcast. So I'll post some pictures, but you can see little t- little cogs. So 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 it looks like a ratchet with. Uh... Yes, because I actually made it put a quarter drive <laughs> on the back, so I could put it on a ratchet. Because even that ones that you can buy for eighty dollars are still by hand. They have like, a little knurl on the back, so you could spin it. I'm like, no. I want it on a ratchet so I can put a, a my electric ratchet on it and just spin it tight. Yeah, nice. So that is um, cool. I will share that STL because um, it is a shame that no one has done that yet. Hmm. Now, how long will this tool last? I have no idea because those cogs are really small. How long does it need to last? Exactly, because it took. 15 minutes to print, I can just print a ton of them. <laughs> so, I'll post that STL and some pictures on the uh, podcast notes. I dig it. That's cool. I actually uh, I, I ran into a situation not long after I came to um, uh, WMD where we needed a tool like that. Uh, Craft so- Lab, that, we 3D printed the one we used to assemble those reload pros <laughs> it lasted a few minutes from <laughs> yes yeah it lasted a few minutes and then we broke down and bought some steel ones but this is made out of polycarbonate so it might last longer might and actually i should try uh printing this with my new resin the the strong x resin on my resin printer if that doesn't work send me some steel and i'll mill you one uh, that might be a little hard to machine it's like I I made it as an internal cog, so the ones that you can buy are external cogs, which would be a way easier to machine because you just, you know, cut around the cog, so you have two ears that poke out. But the problem with those tools is when you try to put them on the banana jack, they kind of slip around and they don't engage really well. This has a slight recess in it, so that when you put it on the banana jack, it fits on the 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 nut, I guess you can call it. And so then you put it on the nut and self aligns, and then as you spin it, the cogs drop down into the into the uh, the teeth, and so you can easily engage it. Hmm. So basically, the high idea is so you can like just stick this on an electric ratchet and just go, like just shove it into the into the banana jack, and it will it will find its way home. <laughs> It'll eventually grip, right? Yes, or shear these right off. <laughs> I'm I'm concerned that it probably will. So. I'm going to try... Are you putting an, an impact gun on it? It's not an impact. It's just an electric <laughs> ratchet. A little electric ratchet. Yeah. So it, I think that electric ratchet puts out 25 foot-pounds, which uh, plenty enough to tighten. That's like that's like hand-tight. It's about 25 foot-pounds. So. But I'm, hmm. I'm going to print one on the resin printer tonight, too. See how well that works. Cool. I bet you I could machine it. I can send you the file. Yeah, send it to me. I want to take a look at it. 
Yeah. So, we got like five minutes left of this podcast. So here's a question for the future us. And kind of want to start turning people's gears in the Slack channel. Um, what would it take to design your own multimeter? That's a loaded question. Yes. That's a very... Well, okay. And the idea from this is... What I want to do with that idea is... I want to make a rack mount multimeter for like doing test equipment stuff. Because um, right now, I, I take an off-shelf multimeter... And I actually print brackets. I have, I'll have i post some pictures. And actually, I'll post pictures of them mounted. But I print brackets, like little brackets, that mount to the multimeter. And so then I can mount those into the chassis without them rattling around. And uh, do it that way. Which works completely fine. And it's actually not that expensive to do it that way. Because the multimeters are like 450 bucks. They already talk skippy. They have all the... They, they work. It just feels wrong to do it that way. Because in because you have all those buttons in the front panel. Like, what if you didn't have that? You're basically designing the front end part of it. Just like the part that does the measurements. Well, what okay. Mm. So the, what I mean by... Okay. I said it's a loaded question because there are so many things to answer before going in. Four there. digit, five digit, seven digit? Well, not only that, but just like okay, so a, a multimeter is a is a multi-use device. It like the it, the multimeter doesn't know what the end user needs, so it ha- it lets you do anything with it. But in your situation, you know in general the range of what you want to measure and well, the thing you want to measure. So you could just design a multimeter. We could take a multimeter, use. me like, well, we could take a multimeter, me like, okay, let's set it up to where like it has the same range of inputs. That, so that you can use it on multiple projects. That would okay. be the idea. You want to make a proper multimeter. Yeah. So you go, hey, um, you know, we don't have to. Let's say we're not even worried about auto ranging. Like you have to tell it what the range is. Um, but what would it take to design something like that? And because the thing about it is, sure, you can measure. You can design something to measure. 500 volts max the problem is you need to also protect it from like much higher voltage than that are um, you trying to design your own multimeter i'm i'm doing kind of like the mental part of that <laughs> it's like what would it take I, i've looked at some projects online some diy multimeters um stuff like that and, and it's not even just like designing that it's also getting it calibrated which one comes first, the chicken, the egg, or the multimeter? <laughs> so, honestly, what I would do, I would buy a fluke, and I would open it up and see all the safety stuff they put in there. I've already opened up a couple of different meters. I, I know what, like, like we need fuses, diodes, that kind of stuff. Basically, your front end has to be able to handle higher voltages. Um, just like... Just throwing that question out there, just to start generating topics in in our in our Slack channel. Let's uh, let's design a uh, a map multimeter from the Slack channel. That'd be fun. Craft Lab says CERN has some open designs they publish. We we'll have to take a look at those. Mm, I got a lot of research to do now. Yeah. So in nine seconds, we should end this podcast. 
Okay, that sounds great. So um, I guess that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Norman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. <laughs>